0: Welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. On today's program, we talk to young money blogger Iona Bain about her new book, Own It, which is all about helping millennials invest their way to a better future. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow and I'm Marcus De Silva and welcome along to the pod. Well, as I said on today's show we're speaking to Iona Bain from the Young Money blog. But before we get to that, let's have a look at some of the more interesting stories. Well, I say interesting stories, your blog, which is definitely very interesting. Whether it's a story (laughs) or not, I don't know. What what have you been blogging about this week? Uh, It is a story
1: actually. I'm I'm glad you went with it being interesting there. Yes, it's out out today. We're going to hear, I mean, look, this is how ahead of um, all all the info that we are. Um, Today, Mr. Rishi Sunak, our Chancellor of the Exchequer, is going to be announcing green bonds that are going to go on sale through our state saver, NS&I, which is quite interesting. 15 billion of them will be issued over the next year. Um, what's quite remarkable about that is it dwarfs what the NS and I have already been set to raise this year, which was six billion. So it's a big movement into this. And what green bonds are, are a promise, basically, you you give over your money to the government, and that money will go towards sustainable endeavours, you know, so solar, wind, green infrastructure, creating green jobs. It's about getting your money into doing good. And it's exciting, really, because it's a bit of a litmus test for green savings, as as AJ Bell's Lath Califf put it. A lot of money has gone into green equity investments. Um, so actually, the, in 2020 alone, we saw 10 billion pounds going into green equity investments. But there are far more savers than there are investors in the UK, about three times more savers. Um, well, about three times more people have um a cash isa over a stocks and shares isa right so this is really putting sustainable financing into the mainstream which is really exciting it's why rishi is going to go and um, announce this to the city today and um and interesting actually what aj bell and interactive have both said is yeah okay fine fine but what is the rate going to be on these bonds right that's the big question isn't it really it is it is because of course you know if you give your money to the government, they've got to pay you a rate of interest on that, okay? And the thing is, is that green bond, whatever type bond, it doesn't really matter what bond um, or guilt that the government um, issue, it's all going into their coffers. So all this is is, is is a bond that they normally do, just with this promise of it going into green stuff. And a 10-year guilt, right, a 10-year government UK government bond, um, they have to pay 077 percent on that, Right. But the problem is inflation is, I mean, the last reading was 2.1%. So what are the government going to offer on this bond that are going to make it attractive? And of course, anything above that normal rate that they normally give for a bond is just costing the taxpayer more money. So the big question mark around that, because if it's really high, you're wasting taxpayer money. If it's too low, then, I mean, it's going to be lower than 2.1%, whatever it is. Are you really going to persuade people, even though it's you know it's for good good things, good causes? Are you really going to persuade people to lock their money into something that's going to lose value over
0: time? Which is, I guess, why they're doing it through the NNSI brand because you know it's hugely popular and yeah, you know, people perceive it as incredibly safe, which of course it is. Right. Um, and you know, I read regularly of the kind of new issues being massively oversubscribed. Um, so I guess that's why it's kind of going going through that brand, just because it, you know the rate. Won't be necessarily market beating, but the, the brand will attract people. Well, you would think so, but a lot of the rates on on their bonds came down last
1: November, and actually there was quite a big um, uh, drop in demand. So um, we we don't know. We just we don't know at this stage. But uh, you know, I I think it is positive, and I think it you know it, it's it is you know what I said about it. You know, bringing these sorts of green products you know much a wider range of them into the into the mainstream is is fantastic because i think you know it's it you know they can really make a difference um, so it's on my blog uh, go to the website www.stepstoinvesting.com
0: in case you don't know that um, and give it a read it won't take you very long Okay, super. Um, spe- speaking of numbers, I think you've been crunching the half one performance data, or at least um, somebody's been crunching it. Our uh, friends. Our friends have our been, friends doing doing been crunching yeah, yeah,
1: it. Okay, yeah, I've not been doing it. Um, yes, um, they have indeed. In, um, AJ Bell actually have given us some figures for the first half when we were on July 1st. So we are again quick to, to give you this information. Um, and, and what I mean by that is performance. So they've been having a look at all the performance of all sorts of funds, asset shares. Um, And the first half of this year. And generally, what's quite exciting is that, you know, the investors are gearing into into vaccine optimism, you know, the rollout of vaccine programmes, economic recovery. And also in the UK, as Brexit issues have faded as well, and the fact that we're doing quite well with our our vaccine rollout, UK smaller companies have been on a tear. They've actually been the top performer. So the FTSE small cap index returned 19.4% versus, and I'll give you a few other major indices here, 10.9% for the FTSE 100 right. and 14% for the S&P 500. I would have expected America to do very well, but you know that's, that's quite significant above that. If we go into the IA sectors and have a little look at how the fund managers are performing within those sorts of groups, it's a similar tale. So smaller companies, UK smaller companies, is 20% on the button. North America is next with 13.1%. So good stuff there for, for UK smaller companies, which tend to be quite geared, quite sensitive to mm. economic recovery. They're cyclical, okay? So they're, they're gonna do well when things are, are getting better, especially. At the bottom of the pile, unsurprisingly, it's all the bond sectors, really. Corporate and government bonds across the globe, all sorts, European, US, UK. And that's because of inflationary fears, you know, when you've got a fixed rate of interest and rising inflation, it's not very attractive. Um, And, you know, we've had very low bond yields for quite some time due to things like quantitative easing, pouring cash into those markets, really. Mm. So it's led to a sell-off in safe haven types of assets. People are opting for shares over bonds, really. HFL also gave us some data that shows DIY investors are going for some fairly recognisable trends as well. So in the shares arena... The top-selling share was Argo Blockchain. We've we mentioned that before. We that have, pod. yeah, yeah. So this is a company that provides technology um, uh, for 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 blockchain. Um, so it's a proxy to to the crypto kind of play. GameStop was another another one that was quite popular. So this is the meme, the meme stock trading kind of trend here.
0: And is that data through their for for their customers through their platform? It's for their customers. Yeah,
1: like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Of course, of course. Yep, yep, yeah. Um, And then the third trend, which is not a surprise, is bargain hunting for value stocks, really, in the FTSE 100. So the thing about the UK is it's got quite a lot of these, what they kind of call all economy stocks and and value. So stocks that appear cheap relative to their assets and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they tend to be quite popular when you you go in through a period of of recovery. So all those things are, are quite understandable. And I think the last thing just to say in funds... What was the surprise? Is UK investors in, in in that in the funds arena still seem to be loving growth? There's quite a, there's some Bailey Gifford funds there that have been quite popular, um, and there is some evidence of movement into the more cyclical areas of the market. Um, you know, due to inflation and recovery, those kind of things that that I've mentioned. Um, maybe not as much as I would have thought. Okay. Um, I would have thought now would be the time, but I think people are still they're still loving those those strong sort of growth funds. So yeah, that, that's some data for you.
0: Okay. Well. Um I've been staring into space. Not while you were talking about that, <laughs> I might add, uh, and not uh, literally, um, a bit more figuratively. But there's been a clutch of new investment launches based around space exploration. Uh, so let me just run through a couple. The first of them is an exchange-traded fund, an ETF. It's called Procure Space, and it launched uh, last month. It's the first space-based etf in europe and it tracks a a basket of companies called the s network space index now they are basically companies which are significantly engaged in space related activities so names you might know uh, virgin galactic uh, garmin maybe at a push uh, utelsat uh, but there are seven other companies that frankly I'd never heard of, that make up um, this index. And the Procure Space ETF tracks the share prices of those companies and has an ongoing charge of 0.75%, which is quite expensive for mm. an ETF. Mm. Um, but I guess it is you know, the nature of this, this, the specialism, really, uh, and the fact that there are only 10 uh, things in in the index. I mean, normally you might expect to see hundreds, maybe even thousands of things in mm. Uh, in, in an ETF index, and um, the ticker—I thought this was fantastic. So the ticker is the four or three or four-letter code uh, for the stock used by the stock exchange to identify this ETF. Is of course YODA or Yoda, um, <laughs> which yeah, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, very good. Uh, not to be outdone though, the investment trust sector is also. Uh, going into this into this space uh, excuse the pun um, and that's the uh, because of the launch of S- the seraphim space investment trust now the company's investment objective is to generate capital growth so growing the value of your money over the long term through investment in a, a diversified global, Uh, portfolio, predominantly of space tech businesses, so space technology businesses. Uh, Now, as far as I can see, the only documents out there about this up-and-coming launch are the Key Information Document and the Prospectus, neither of which I would commend to you as easy reads. They're terrible. But if you go into the the detail, I found out that they're looking uh, to invest in 19 space technology-related companies. And I, I didn't know this, but space technology means businesses, and I'm quoting from the Prospectus here, businesses which rely on space-based connectivity or precision, navigation and timing signals or whose technology or services are already addressing or originally derived from the potential benefit to the space sector. Uh, So now you know. Um, Charges could be of the order of 1.63% a year. And again, it's Mm. just the nature of the underlying uh, investments being expensive, I suspect. Mm, Quite illiquid and small. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, in a moment, Iona Bain. Uh, first, let's let uh, let's find out what's been happening in the markets this week, uh, and then we'll do companies. Let's do markets first, Marcus.
1: Yeah. So in the UK, we saw some strong profits being posted by some of the big boys of the FTSE 100, which has caused a jump uh, this morning, day of recording on Thursday. And it seems investors are shrugging off some of the concerns about rising coronavirus infections. So included in some of these Good earnings are Associated British Foods, Primark, some of the big financials, and metals miners as well are doing pretty well on strong commodity prices, according to Reuters. The Bank of England's governor as well, Andrew Bailey, came out and was speaking to markets, and he was basically saying, please don't overreact to inflationary concerns. I mean, this is a big question around, is it transitory, or could it be persistently higher, which can start to seriously erode wealth? And I think what he said was, well, I know what he said, was that there are three reasons why, you know, you should be comfortable that this is transitory. So the first is that year on year price comparisons are pretty distorted against this weird lockdown world that we had last year. Um, which is fair enough. Also, that supply disruptions and bottlenecks are are creating some issues there, which is which is you know causing um, prices to rise. But that will flush out, you know, um, as as we start to get going. And I um, mean, I think I described to Adrian Lowcock, you know, it's a sort of sleepy economy waking from a from a slumber. So um, you know that that should flush out. And then the third thing is that. At the moment, he said spending is quite focused on goods, but as things start to get back to normal, services should start to smooth out the demand that's quite focused on goods, um, which I thought was an interesting thing to say. So that should give us some confidence. In Europe, we seem to be having a pretty good session there as well. There was some manufacturing survey data that came out it's known as the PMIs, and it showed the strongest uplift in production on record which is 24 years long. So that's pretty positive. It seems the mood mus- music in, in the Eurozone is now that COVID restrictions are being relaxed. We're getting back, you know, vaccinations are rising. We're getting back to normal. So that seems pretty good. I think one of the things that we're seeing around the world, you know, we were talking about the poor performance of, of bonds and we're starting to see yields going up. So prices falling. As investors are, are are selling really, and that's because you know they're starting to bet that central banks will rein in this fire hose of cash that they've been directing at the bond markets, um, and also that they see you know the, the the risk of inflation coming through through a little bit. So they're they're selling they're selling the safer safer assets really. In Japan and emerging markets across Russia and Asia, we also saw saw manufacturing there being a little bit weak. So markets are. Are a bit subdued. There's new curbs due to rising infections. There, um, you know, vaccination programs are aren't great. Plus, there's the rising cost of, of raw materials as well. So, as I say, that's subduing markets. In the US, uh, tear. I mean, like doing doing very well. Really, the S and P is really is really going well. And I think what investors are doing are looking past some of that what we would describe as hawkishness um, by the central bank that we got a few weeks back. And by that, I mean, you know, the the fact that they sort of said, well, we're probably going to raise rates sooner than you thought. We're probably going to stop QAE sooner than you thought. Um, they're kind of looking past that and they're saying, you know, strong vaccination record, really exciting prospects for growth and infrastructure spend, um, uh, you know, um, very good. And I, and I think what shows it is the FT reported that since February, US equity funds have taken in 189 billion dollars, which is which is pretty thunderous um, so all in all the S&P 500 is up 40 points to 4,298 the FTSE 100 is up three points to 7,089 the stock 600 is up two points to 455 and the Nikkei 225 is down 432 points to 28,707
0: Simon what have you got in companies I have got two things in companies this week. First up is online trading platform Robinhood. Now, you'll remember the name uh, from when we were talking about the GameStop saga recently, as this was one of the the platforms where U.S. investors were basically flocking um, to get into this whole meme trading uh, movement. Um, and indeed, at the end, end of March 2020, which is the last data we can get hold of, they had 31 million customers. Just to put that in perspective, if you remember that the largest player in the UK is Hargreaves Lansdown, they have a paltry by comparison one and a half million uh, customers. So it just shows you, you know, really how big Robinhood are. And um, they did try to come to the UK, as as we understand it, the the regulatory environment was such that they decided to put those plans on hold indefinitely and i think now we can see why which is uh, the fact that robin hood this week have been fined 70 million dollars for the uh, in the U.S. for uh, basically a catalogue of regulatory failures, uh, which in one case actually led to the suicide of one of their customers. So the the failures and uh, the list goes on really, but the failures include uh, opening accounts for dead people, uh, not reporting complaints to the the register, uh, giving uh, sorry the regulator uh, giving customers false or misleading information about their account balances, which is the thing that led to the, this uh, young man, a 19-year-old, uh, committing suicide. He was told by the platform he owed them $730,000, when in fact his account balance was uh, a positive $16,000. But then also incorrect information about uh, the risk of loss. And and crucially, and, and this is the the biggest problem really, um, was that customers couldn't get access to their accounts during these um, peaks of trading, right, where this, you know, there were high high moments of market activity, meaning they were locked out and unable to trade, costing them uh, thousands of dollars. Finra, which is the U.S. Uh, regulatory authority, said this week uh, that for more than five years, Robinhood had failed to establish and maintain a system for complying with regulations, and that indeed compliance was not optional, couldn't be sacrificed. In the name of innovation, Robin Hood, for their part, responded saying they were glad the matter had been put behind them. Hmm. Uh, one other piece of news, General Mills, who you, you may not uh, know, um, but you will do when I mention some of these names in a second, their sales... Uh, are going to fall this year, they've said. The company owns brands like uh, Betty Crocker, Haagen-Dazs, Cheerios. It it said that it expects sales of products sold under those brands and others will fall as we emerge from lockdown, basically because we're going to start eating out a lot more than we were. Uh, Business was already down 10% in the last three months of their financial year, and it said it expected a slide of a further 1% to 3% in the coming year. Uh, That being said, the share price for the company uh, year-to-date is flat at $60. Okay, so that's the news. Now let's move on to our interview this week. And Marcus spoke to Young Money blogger and author Iona Bain about investing for millennials. Now,
1: today we actually have an author with us who, for 10 years through her Young Money blog and speaking engagements and all sorts of media, has been on a mission to demystify saving and investing for young people. She's now written a book on it, Own It, and it focuses on the challenges that millennials and Gen Zs face in today's world. the Types of goals, that they're aiming for and the various concepts and apps and things that they need to understand in order to build a much more secure financial future. So I'm very pleased to have with me on the pod, Iona Bain. Iona, welcome to the pod.
2: Well, it's great to be joining you, Marcus.
1: Shall we start with how you got into this? Because am I right in saying that you were originally a musician?
2: Yes, that's right. So when I was younger, I trained as a musician. I was a classical musician and then moved into pop. And after I left university, I spent a few years in Scotland, trying to be a musician and music journalist and having a ball, not making a huge amount of money uh, and also really struggling to achieve independence and become financially secure. And I realized, of course, that I was far from alone. Uh, This was just a few years after the financial crash. And so lots of other young people I knew were also struggling. And I thought to myself, hmm, maybe we need a little bit more help and guidance on money issues, because I knew nothing about money. And that's when I decided to start the Young Money blog. So that was in May 2011. And so last month, at the time of recording, was the uh, 10-year anniversary of Young Money Blog.
1: Oh, congratulations there. Yeah, no, it's great stuff. Okay, fine. So let's get into the book. And you sort of, you start by describing, you know, very well, the issues that young people face, the financial challenges that they face and are continuing to face. Can you describe what these are?
2: Sure. Well, firstly, we've had the scarring effect of not one but two serious economic crises So the first economic crisis was obviously the 2008 financial crash. Uh, And there's very compelling research that shows that the group of young people who left education around that time uh, saw a real impact on their wages and they took much longer to recover compared to other groups. So there is this very clear cause and effect uh, where employers reduced wages for a time uh, and also, competition for jobs was fierce. I remember this uh, around the time of you know, 2009 to 2011. Uh, and it seemed as if uh, you know, we were paying so much more for our education and yet not necessarily getting jobs that were commensurate with that education, which felt like a real kick in the teeth. And then we've had monetary policy, specifically quantitative easing and the fact that this has really pushed up the price of assets like housing and shares, and that has primarily benefited the older generations who are already asset owners. Uh, But it has really put those assets out of reach of many younger people, and that's contributed to our housing market becoming even more dysfunctional over the past 10 years. So house building rates have fallen, uh, some reckon to their lowest level since the Second World War. Uh, And we also have this weaker outlook for investments, Uh, so a much more challenging time ahead potentially where you're not going to get the easy wins that we saw during the bull market of 2008 uh, to 2020. And then we also have this incredibly complex wild west of investing online where anyone can set themselves up as an investing influencer and all these apps are making it super easy to start trading. Uh, But young people are are diving into this world and don't really have the knowledge and experience uh, to navigate it in a skillful way so very broadly speaking those are the challenges that I think face the younger generation when it comes to their personal finances and investing.
1: Oh gosh yeah that's quite vivid a bit of financial vice and then and then stuck in a, in a, in a place where you can't get a lot of information and, mm. and education. Yeah. Do you think how good are we at saving as a, a generation?
2: I think we have got better and we have got better over the past year or so as a result of the pandemic so prior to covid i think that young people did have quite a nihilistic attitude towards their finances i think a lot of young people thought screw it you know those brexiteer baby boomers have wrecked our futures you know and forced us to live like hermits during the pandemic you know we might as well after this go out and enjoy ourselves and have fun and i certainly do think there will be a bit of a roaring twenties effect but i i think that outweighing that is is this real shock and trauma if if that doesn't sound too dramatic a word but I do think we have had this traumatic event really in world history and particularly for young people who would never have dreamed in a million years that they would you know have to stay at home that potentially the government would tell them that their jobs weren't viable and we know from all the research that you know it's the younger generations who are most likely to have been furloughed and made redundant and lost income and and that is just such a huge shock to the system that young people will never forget it and they will think I've got to look after myself and I've got to make sure that I'm ready just in case the rainy day comes because we've seen over the past year that, boy, it can rain. So I think we are getting better as savers. And, and the research does show this, actually, that a surprising number of young people are saving a surprising amount.
1: And, you know, also, I mean, you've painted a picture. We don't really have a lot um, of money. I mean, do we matter much as investors or are we are we starting to become more interesting to those who might sell investments?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that you could argue on the one hand that uh, investors generally, uh, never mind young investors, um, have taken a back seat in the markets and and, and have, you know, fallen down the, the pecking order and, and aren't as important as they used to be. And that shareholder culture has taken a real battering in, in recent times. In the book, I talk about how Really, I think the 1980s were the birth of, of shareholder culture. You know, at that time, we saw lots of publicly listed companies um, open up their shares to ordinary savers, who and they were able to make a decent sum of money from from that uh, from that IPO boom that we saw. But since then, the number of companies with shares listed on public markets um, that can be bought by you and I with fairly modest amounts has fallen. And at the same time, private equity has definitely grown uh, in in importance. That's the glass half full assessment, glass half empty assessment. The glass half full assessment, I would say, is that technology has done a huge amount to democratise investments and put more power into the hands of younger investors in particular. And we've seen over the past year, huge events being driven by retail investors who tend to be younger retail investors. And I think institutional investors are starting to take the pulse of those younger investors too. And you can see that from the the increased emphasis put on environmental, social and governance factors, Uh, And also the fact that, I mean, only uh, this week at time of recording, I saw, you know, trending on Twitter, the fact that lots of people were putting pressure on Morrisons over their animal welfare policies. But um, they specifically used the hashtag Morrisons investment scandal. So they were tying this problem that they saw in in how Morrisons does business with whether or not people should invest in the company. So I think we're going to start to see this this. Uh, resurgence of the shareholder culture in years to come.
1: Okay, interesting. Well, let's get on to some of the goals. There's probably two major goals that, uh, you know, young people probably want to achieve, and that's buying a house in nearer term and then, and then building a pension for, for later on. Let's start with houses. Mm. Are they beyond reach for young people now? I mean, you mentioned there that um, extraordinary monetary policy has certainly sent assets up and that, that, that's that gone into housing. You know, are, are prices just too toppy?
2: Well, I certainly think, as I said before, the housing market is dysfunctional and we desperately need to address that with building more homes. And we also need to look at planning reform. Uh, However, governments over the years of of all stripes have said that they're going to reform the housing market. And in truth, very little happens. And over the past 10 years, we have seen uh, policies that have really helped pump up demand, but not done very much to address supply. And that's what's made housing seem so unaffordable to younger people. All that said, I do think that the media paints a very one-sided gloomy picture of the housing market. It hugely depends on where you live uh, and what your your income is. And yes, there is a big problem with regards to whether or not people can actually borrow that much more as a multiple of their earnings. Uh, but you could argue that maybe that's that's a responsible measure to take given that we don't really want to saddle this generation with too much mortgage Debt, and that we don't want them taking on mortgages that they can't afford. You know, we do have to learn some lessons from the housing crash that we saw in the 2000s. So, I think that you've got to really think about your own situation and, and not get too blinded by the generic coverage out there about the housing market. Uh, there's zero shame in renting. You know, renting is the right choice for someone to make if they're still finding their feet, if they're not sure where they want to live, if they're going to be in that place for for a long period of time. And taking on a mortgage is a huge commitment. And I would say uh, it is best to save as much as you can so that you can get a bigger deposit, you have more choice, you have more options, less risk of negative equity, and you're not going to have to rely on Trixie shortcuts like the help to buy equity loan scheme, which um, I criticise a lot in the book because I I, I feel like it it is a a real viper's nest for young people. Uh, And I think it has really taken advantage of young people's desperation to get on the housing ladder. Uh, And I think we also need to be very careful when we're buying new build homes as well, because as we've seen with the cladding scandal, uh, standards of home building in recent times have not been great, to say the least. (laughs)
1: do you think there's enough time to invest to you know and try and make a difference to your you mentioned saving there but can you invest and make a difference to that savings pot do you have enough time when you're when you're trying to buy a house
2: yes it's a fascinating question i mean the conventional wisdom is that you should never invest towards your first home deposit uh, and that's because who wants to risk their home deposit in the stock market and that's true in theory but firstly, I would say perhaps that advice dates back to a time where you could put your uh, first home fund in a savings account earning 5 or 6%, you know, keep that ticking over for a few years and bingo, you've managed to buy your first home. It's just not like that anymore. You know, and one of the challenges that I didn't actually speak about at the top, but which is really critical in this whole discussion, of course, is the absolute decline of savings rates. The fact that we have a record low base rate that I don't think it's likely to go up anytime soon. I think a lot of economists, Agree, we're in a kind of new paradigm with this Uh, and therefore it's so hard to save you know and get a decent interest rate a decent reward for that effort that you're putting into saving um so i think that we do have to be a bit more nuanced in how we think about this this whole um issue and also a product that's been a real game changer in this respect is the lifetime isa this is the first product that allows people to get a very generous bonus it gives young people a very generous incentive to invest for their first home because you can get up to a thousand pounds free from the government every year um, to, to put towards your first home and you can put that either in cash or stocks and shares so i know a lot of young people who are just going for it they're putting the their first home deposit in stocks and shares through a lifetime ISA, but for the most part, I'm very glad to say they are taking some sensible precautions to make sure that they're not, you know, uh, really going out there and and and. Uh, risking that home deposit. And I mean, you can't eliminate the risks. This is the thing. You do have to be honest with people and say, if you do suspect that at the first sign of a a market crash, you would freak out and withdraw your cash, uh, then you've got to listen to that instinct and go go with a cash lifetime ISA. Um, Some people are just naturally more cautious than others. Um, but at the same time, you can do an awful lot to reduce your risks. And I think so long as you are committed to doing that, uh, then I wouldn't rule it out as, as an option. I mean,
1: they sort of say a minimum of five years for an equity investment.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And given, and given how high house prices are and, and how long people are having to, to save towards their first home, it is not, it's not absurd to suggest that it could take longer than five years for you to build up that, that deposit.
1: So let's move on to pensions then. Do you think pension poverty is a is a is a real risk for young people later on down the line?
2: I hate the word pension poverty to be honest, um, because I think that it's a really unhelpful term and that it will just um, lead young people to feel like there is absolutely no point in them. Uh, trying to make plans for the future because uh, they're doomed anyway. And I know so many young people who say to me, well, we're not even going to have a state pension, you know, when we retire. And I, I'm I'm not quite sure where they've got this idea from, but it is so prevalent that that I can only conclude that we have gone so far with the intergenerational warfare that we've seen over the past 10 years that we have managed to persuade a generation to think that you know pensions will one day die out I don't think it will ever be as as bad as that I don't think it'll be anywhere near as bad as that um and I and I think that you know young people saying this uh, is is worrying because it's not like then they're asking me, well, what can I do about it? They're, they're just giving up. And it might be, I think, partly because whenever the pensions industry does manage to get through to young people in the past, it's been with these really harsh, hectoring messages around, you're not saving enough. You're just spending too much money on Sky TV and avocados and coffees, and it's not good enough. You need to save more, more, more. And I am so against that because I think that if you, if you give that impression to young people, they, they will think, well, the kinds of contribution rates that you're talking about, 15 to 25%, you know, are you off your rocker? There is no way that I can afford that, you know. Um, so I think we're just going to have to be a little bit more thoughtful and careful in the kinds of messages that we send to younger people. But having said all that, there is, of course, a risk that young people will, will be disappointed when they get to retirement, and that they will think that the state pension is enough to meet their needs, when in fact, that might not be the case.
1: Do you think this um, ethical slant towards pensions is something that is appealing to young people. I mean, we've seen celebrities like Richard Curtis. We mentioned him before. You know, trying mm. to, to push this issue. Do you think it is a, a compelling argument for young people to do more with their pensions?
2: I do think it's a compelling argument, and I think it's one way that we can really engage young people with their pensions. Because, Lord knows, we need to find ways to talk to young people about their pensions, um, it, and and we need to find ways that will really uh, connect with with the stuff that matters to young people but i would say that i think that young people um i've got a big problem with the research that we're seeing you know all the time now that suggests that young people care so deeply about where their pension is invested and yet when you actually drill down into what they're doing about this the answer is very little um and so of course if you go to a young person and you say you know do you want your pension to be ethically invested they go yeah of course i do you know everyone wants to be a good person right just because you want to be a good person doesn't mean that that's easy and therefore if we don't get past that if we just stick to this really simplistic idea that every young person wants to ethically invest therefore you know that's fine we'll we'll you know we'll we'll just we'll just decide on their behalf what ethical investment looks like then i think that's a recipe for greenwashing on an industrial scale and the the way that we we resolve that is that we we talk to young people. We say, you know, do you want to ethically invest? Yes. Okay. What do you mean by this? What do you think ethical investing means? What would you like to see your pension invested in? And then actually present them with the difficult choices that that they will have to make and and the actions that they would have to take in order to make those changes. And and to be fair, it is it is becoming a lot easier to to switch your workplace pension and to choose more quote-unquote ethical options for your pension. Uh, but I, I mean, again, there's this mismatch between what's possible and what's actually happening on the ground. You know, most young people I know are still not doing basic things that would allow them to have a pension that they feel more comfortable with. So for instance, if they buy into the idea that divesting is, is, is the way to, to achieve a more ethical pension, which is in, a, in and of itself debatable, but if they do believe that, then then why aren't they doing that en masse through their workplace pensions as things stand it's partly maybe because you know those younger people need to get to grips with these issues themselves but we also need to find a way and when I say we I mean people who work in the financial industry and people like me who talk about this stuff we need to find a way to talk to young people about it so that the light bulb goes on and they go ah yes I do need to do something about this and maybe it's not as hard as I thought it was.
1: Okay, let's go on to FIRE. I mean, this is quite, it's one of these quite interesting um, strategies that's kind of come out of the US. It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. It's a bit crass, but um, <laughs> can, you, can you explain what this is?
2: So yes, um, the Financial Independence Retire Early movement uh, was born in the US. Uh, and uh, like so many things uh, that are from the US, it, it's also kind of spread to lots of countries, including the UK. So the idea behind it is that you build up a pot of money that's at least 25 times the amount you'd like to live off. And 25 is sort of the golden number for the fire advocates. And it's based on this assumption that you would withdraw no more than 4% of your fire fund every year when you're retired so you don't run out of cash. So if you want an income of £40,000 a year uh, post-retirement, then you would need a fire pot of £1 million pounds. How do you achieve that? Well, typically, it's a combination of um, investing in exchange-traded funds, so low-cost investing, uh, and super-saving. And, I mean, I have seen some fire experts say, uh, no, you don't have to have a particularly austere lifestyle. You just have to be more mindful in how you spend your money, which which is true in theory. But I think that a lot of fire advocates are, are quite privileged, you know, and, and, and they, they do tend to be a certain type, shall we say, uh, and they may not have the same problems and challenges that a lot of the general population have. And I think to most people, you know, the kind of savings demanded by fire, I, you know, realistically speaking, they're about 50 to 70 percent of your income. That is way beyond what most people can achieve you know, even if they were to cut, cut out all the kind of little things that make life worth living. Um, but having said that, you know, I kind of go into the whole fire movement in, in the book and talk about whilst I think it is too extreme. And I don't particularly like the idea of retiring at 40 anyway, because I'm lucky I've managed to find some work that I quite enjoy. And I think it's about reevaluating work. And we're certainly going to do that after the pandemic. You know, I don't think we're ever going to get go back to being on the kind of mindless treadmill where we're just working to spend uh, and we aren't being thoughtful and mindful enough in our lives. So I think there are some, some things that we can take away from the fire movement. And also the fact that perhaps we have got a little bit too hung up on retirement being this, this thing that happens decades and decades in the future after you've been working full time right up until you know the age of 65 or 70. But perhaps we can have a slightly more balanced approach to life maybe we don't have to work our socks off and then fully retire and not really have enough to do maybe that's not not actually a recipe for for happiness perhaps something a little bit more balanced along the way would work better for a lot of people
1: mm, yes it's sort of a hybrid of the two you're yeah. right so rather than full-time work and then nothing it's it's probably a balance almost continually yeah um and i suppose you know taking from fi you know if you built up a pot that supported you somewhat then that might enable a lifestyle that has part-time work and then free time to do other things that you're really engaged with like charity work or work in the community or, or whatever that might be yeah
2: absolutely and in the book i talk about the fact that you know we get very hung up on goals uh, and the financial industry puts a lot of focus on goals but maybe it's better to, to think about investing as a way to to achieve dreams you know we may not know what happens in our future it's very hard to predict what's going to happen you know 5, 10, 15 years down the track but we might have some dreams in our head and it would be wonderful if they could happen if life takes us in that direction then we want to be ready for them and I suppose that that's why why I invest I invest because I haven't got all my goals down pat but I do have dreams about the future and and if they ever look like they could come true then I really want the money there to kind of help me achieve them
1: let's move on to cryptos um mm-hmm. i mean i think the thing you know it's uh well i'm gonna ask you two questions here firstly you know what's your thoughts do you think it's this great sort of this technology this is a great financial liberator um or are they kind of speculative and and a bit dodgy and the other the other thing i wanted to ask was you know is there the young interest that you kind of hear? And are you surprised by that, given that there are enormous environmental concerns over Bitcoin, mine- well, not Bitcoin, but crypto mining?
2: Yes. Yeah, so to take your first question about my feelings um, when it comes to Bitcoin, I'm agnostic about Bitcoin. I don't necessarily think that it's the salvation of the world and the economy and of our finances, uh, but but nor would I ever write it off completely where I think we're at at the moment is that we are lacking an honest and balanced conversation about Bitcoin. Uh, And I think that there are so so many aspects of Bitcoin that are attractive and alluring to young people. And in the book, I I liken it to the Pied Piper, you know, luring all these young people into a cave seemingly filled with riches, you know, and no one wants to be left behind with all the stupid adults in the town. It's got this real anti-establishment feeling behind it Uh, and also it has had this really stunning trajectory in in recent years and nobody can deny that what i think we need to be careful about is firstly we shouldn't underplay how difficult it is to securely hold bitcoin you know the number of people who are still very pro-Bitcoin, who've actually lost a lot of money, either because they've lost the keys to access their Bitcoin or they've had it stolen in a in a crypto heist, um, in a crypto exchange heist, it's really quite surprising how many people who are really smart and know an awful lot about Bitcoin have, have really fallen foul of a lot of the criminality that surrounds Bitcoin. And then I think when it comes to how we should view it, I mean, clearly it's not going to be adopted as a stable functional currency anytime soon. It's just far too volatile for that. It's being used primarily as a way to speculate. uh, And you could say that it's falling foul to the kind of greater fool um mantra whereby you know the the rises it, it, the, the rise of the asset really depends on on you buying it at a certain level and then another fool buying it at a higher level than you and and that's why i think some people including a, a blogger that i quote in the book called mr money mustache i think he put it quite well when he said that it's feels more like a win lose battle against other humans with money as the sole objective as opposed to this money going into the real economy creating real products and services with real value and so that's that's where I have my doubts and also I quote some research in the book that shows that the less financially literate you are the more likely you are to go into Bitcoin so it kind of busts that myth that all the Bitcoin bros and 79% of Bitcoin investors are male let's face it uh, that they know better than us that they've got it all sussed out that they're just cleverer than you you're just if you haven't figured out how Bitcoin works it's because you're stupid Well, my message is, no, it's not because you're stupid. It's just because there's a lot of very confusing stuff about Bitcoin, uh, illogical, a bit contradictory, uh, and it's still very much establishing itself. Having said all that, you know, there it's a very fast moving picture uh, and it could well be that if it is adopted more and more by the mainstream system, then, then there may be safer ways to access Bitcoin as an asset class in the future and less complicated ways. Because I don't know about you, Marcus, but I've looked into setting up Bitcoin accounts and it's its like a full time job. Uh, and also there are lots of like day to day admin Issues associated with it. I've heard about lots of people struggling to get. Um, you know, they've been trying to buy properties with Bitcoin, and the solicitors that they've approached won't work with them because they they think, oh, this is a bit dodgy. Rightly or wrongly, uh, that's that's how it's been perceived at the moment. So lots of people are having issues conducting their day-to-day financial affairs because they're relying too much on Bitcoin. So what I'd say is that if you wanna put maybe 500 pounds, a thousand pounds into Bitcoin um, and you can afford to lose it, there I've got nothing against that, knock yourself out. Uh, but if you are putting all your investing cash into Bitcoin uh, then, then you are taking an insanely high risk there that I personally would never feel comfortable with. And and just to address the environmental point that you make, it's really interesting because obviously the, the the recent activities of Elon Musk have have, have shone a light on on, on this area. Um, and some people have suggested that actually, you know, most of the Bitcoin uh, that that's being mined is is that's being powered by uh, so uh, by wind farms based in China. Um, but I think the, the, the research is still very sketchy in this area, and there's still quite a lot of compelling evidence that there is an environmental cost to producing and mining Bitcoin and that it is pretty immense uh, and that it's hard to overlook it. Now, maybe in due course that will be resolved. Let's hope so, because if Bitcoin's not going away anytime soon, then we need to figure out a way to make this whole thing much more environmentally friendly. Uh, but as things stand, you know, people do need to kind of go out and do the research themselves and figure out am i comfortable with this and and could i end up you know being a being a bit contradictory and and dare i say it maybe a bit hypocritical in terms of if i say i want to do good with my money and then end up putting all my money into bitcoin not least because it's not actually out there in the economy doing anything particularly productive um, am i really am i really walking the walk as well as talking the talk
1: okay finally let's um let's have a look more recently we've We've seen a lot of new accounts and a lot of young people coming to the market since lockdown, really. And you sort of mentioned that earlier on, you know, do they understand enough? Is there too much, you know, um, sort of enticement being driven by social media meme kind of trading and that there isn't sufficient understanding of, of risk, investment risk?
2: Well, firstly, I would say that the situation in the UK is not quite as stark as it is in the US, because firstly, in the US, they have basically had the equivalent of universal basic income over the past year or so they've had checks sent in the post stimulus checks, uh, sent to them by the government, and a lot of people have just been treating this as free money, it's like monopoly cash. And so I think that's what's driven a lot of this risky behavior, as well as the extra time that people have had on their hands and the fact that we haven't had certain sporting fixtures and other events to gamble on. And so I think a lot of that's a a lot of those events in America have 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 created a more extreme environment here in the UK. I do think that that investors are a little bit more level headed and thoughtful. Having said that, I have come across, you know, plenty of, of younger investors here in the UK who've been who've had their fingers burnt because they've put all their money in GameStop shares or AMC shares or indeed Bitcoin um, and who uh, have have, you know, really wanted to not just run before they could walk, but do the equivalent of a tough mudder, you know. Um, and so, th- <laughs> I mean, this is the group for whom, you know, my, my book would I would say be incredibly helpful because um, I think now it's it's never been easier to invest. You can go online and you can open an account on a trading platform and start buying shares in minutes. And in some ways, this is progress. It's fantastic that we no longer have this you know rarefied section of society being the only people who could realistically take part in retail investing, but when you make investing easy, there's a risk you make it too easy and that you remove some of these crucial safeguards uh, that are required to protect people from themselves. because investing is is something that can have profound consequences not just for your finances but for your mental health as well and in the book i talk about the fact that very sadly we saw somebody take their own life last year in the u.s using the trading app Robinhood because they thought they'd lost a six-figure sum trading complex derivatives now you know this was a 19 year old boy he should never have been allowed to access those kinds of products and reading his story you think what, how on earth have we got to a point where this was, was allowed to happen? And so, you know, I should stress that there's been a greater emphasis on, on uh, you know, having those stricter controls since then. And Robinhood has said, you know, it's going to improve its investor education. But what I would say is that I've seen this right across the board with trading platforms. They all talk about investor education. Yeah, we, we have academies, we have courses, we have podcasts. We do it all. Yeah. OK. But that doesn't mean that the people are actually reading that stuff and listening to that stuff and paying any attention to that stuff. And especially when you don't offer that stuff on the app where they are actually making the transactions. And I have one of these trading apps uh, and I can tell you that there's there's nothing stopping me going and buying any share I like, any investment trust I like, any ETF I like today. And there are zero checks on what I can buy and sell. And yes, there's now this kind of idea of you know self-certification and making sure that people are sophisticated investors. But again, As part of my research for the book, I went on to some of these trading platforms and went through these processes. They're pretty easy to game. If you want to get through them, you can get through them pretty easily. You can tell these systems what you want to hear. So I think that we're going to have to have a, a... I mean, you know, is regulation the answer? Often, regulation just makes things worse rather than better. But certainly, uh, you know, it, it seems to me like a lot of the the rules that we have around the regulation of products and and the regulation of advertising is just so um, inadequate and out of date and relates to to a world that we're no longer living in.
1: Okay, so final word. I mean, what would you love to see, in order to be, you know, for generally the the industry to be more engaging as financial educators?
2: Wow, well, (laughs) it's tricky, isn't it? Because actually with my book, I like to think that I've made it as accessible and down to earth and fun and funny as possible. Uh, But to be honest, you can't make investing seem like a game because it's not a game and as i say in the book as soon as you see it as a game it's game over you do have to convey that investing is a serious thoughtful business uh, that it's not just a kind of hobby that you can dabble in it's not the same as gambling it's not speculating it's not these things that m- make investing seem really fun and exciting you know you got to put the hard yards in you got to do some of the quite frankly boring stuff like going through you know the the basic numbers uh, that relate to these companies, especially when you're investing in individual shares, you know, just investing in them because you pulled out a tile from a Scrabble bag or because you use that product and you like that company and you think it sounds nice. That's not a good rationale for investing. That's just gambling. Um, So I think that that there is more that the industry can do obviously to be accessible, to get into those spaces that young people are using now online, on social media, to discuss these things in a way that is down to earth and fun and ideally using peer educators so young people who are like me i suppose who are going through this whole process as well and figuring it out uh, and and in the book i share my investing diary from last year the things i got right the things i didn't get right uh and i think that's helpful because then you're kind of providing that antidote to the you know grotastic influencers online who are who are making out that they're getting everything right that they've got all the answers come this way and you're guaranteed to make money well if you can you know balance that with with people who are real investors who are sharing what they've learned uh, and 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 care about the interests of of people out there and and they're not just going to tell them what they want to hear but what they need to hear um then i think if we take more of that approach that could be that could be very promising and and successful
1: well it's really nice to speak to you Iona Um, I really enjoyed the book it's fantastic read very engaging very well researched own it it is out now on Amazon Waterstone Harriman House you can also go to Iona's blog Young Money blog Um, but apart from that
0: Iona great to have you on the pod
2: oh thank you so much
0: Iona Bain there from the blog Young Money and author of own it. Uh, just so you know, if you'd like to get hold of a copy of that book, then there's a link in the description to this pod where you can get yourself not only a free chapter but also a discounted copy of the book. Um, quite a lot to unpick from that interview, Marcus. Let's start with this thing about retail investors and the power of retail investors and, and meme trading as such. Is, is that a fad in your view or is it a, a longer term trend?
1: Um, I don't know how... Longer-term it is it seems as if from what I've been reading, you know, there 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 is a a Much bigger movement people are starting to notice that on social media um, Finance has been talked about a lot more I think particularly in the US and I think the concern with this sort of means stock trading is You know, is it really proper investing? Um, is it just Certain people, you know coming up with ideas that they can then know they can create hype around and therefore pump up the price of it so that they can then um, get rid of it. Um, You know, are people then buying into that knowing because of the hype that they can sell it on to someone for a higher price? That's known as greater fool theory. You're finding someone who sort of knows less than you. Um, And, you know, in particular on the social channels, we've seen Gen Zs flocking towards this stuff. TikTok is big for this. There's these, these sorts of videos that talk about you know, the these these types of meme stocks are called stock talks. And the hashtag for Stock Talks has gone to one point three billion views. Um the wider one for investing on TikTok has got two point eight billion views. So it's there's obviously a lot of interest, but you know, the problem with Greater Fool Theory is someone's gonna be left holding the bag. You know, you're gonna you're gonna lose money at some point when the hype ends that it can crash and, and you can lose quite a lot. And, and I'm afraid that these young people, then that's their experience of investing. If they don't come back to it. Um, worse still, our regulators are going to start going after people for pumping and dumping stocks. You know, Ultimately, that's what they were going after John McAfee for around supposedly, you know, I, I don't know whether the cryptos were real or not, but hyping those through his social channels and then making quick buck of it, um, which led to him him committing suicide in a Spanish, in a Spanish jail. So, um, because it's nasty if they do come after you. So to me, all of that is quite concerning. You know, long-term, diversified, sensible investing is where real wealth is created. It might seem like you can go out and chase thousands of percent returns in a, in a small matter of days. But um, over the long term, you know, I, I don't know how much wealth is really created like that for people. Um, that's definitely not what we recommend. So I think I think that would be my view on that. Okay, she was she was talking about st- state pensions. I've got a question for you. And you know, just just saying, you know, um, she didn't know whether it will be around by the time sort of millennials
0: retire. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that that was a point she made that that lots of millennials thought that um, that the state pension wouldn't exist, and and, and Iona was sort of struggling to understand why people thought that, you know, where were they getting that information from? I mean, I, I, I think it probably will exist. Um, I think it would be electoral suicide for any um, government manifesto or prospective government manifesto to say we're going to get rid of the state pension. Um, but th- there are questions that remain. You know, what form will the pension be in? Uh, what what rate will it be at? We know at the moment, you know, the, the 8,000, roughly 8,000 pounds that you can get you know, is 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 that amount, an amount that you can and live off? You know, will that still be the, the same amount in 20, 30, 40 years time? And and, you know, and who will it be uh, available to? You know, will it be everybody um, who's contrib- contributed national insurance, or will there be a sort of smaller universe of people? Um, so so I think I think the answer is probably yes, but in what form? I don't, you know, I don't know, and that's that's crystal ball stuff.
1: Yes, but still, your own your own pension, your workplace pension, any private pensions you have that's going to be the big important thing to, to to focus on in terms of your security in the future.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Okay, well, let's uh, draw a line there. Thank you, Iona, for uh, coming on the show. Thank you very much for listening. Join us again next week, but until then, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.